everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black History and beyond. Hello, hello, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today on the History Hotline. We have episode number 41, the start of season two. If you've been here for season one, thank you for coming back. And if you're brand new, then welcome to the History Hotline. The hottest line for all things Black History and beyond is what it says on the tin. And I really do hope to serve that for you today. So without further ado, I will say today's episode is one I've been excited to do for a very long time. It's called The Origins of Notting Hill Carnival. And uh, you might be thinking, well, there's no carnival this year. Is this podcast going to make me feel good? Is it going to make me want to, you know, dance to some soca music in the street? Well, unfortunately not. And I do at this point want to give a content warning and trigger warning. Um, There will be conversations and descriptions of violence, racial abuse um, and death. Um, So please, if this episode is not for you, um, then, you know, take a moment to 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 choose another one and um, we have a wide range of episodes um for you to listen to so thank you as i said for joining us if you're new here this is the history hotline um we do episodes on all things black history and beyond if i haven't said it already uh mostly black british and caribbean history with the occasional um little bit of african history will i do more african history this season I don't know. Let's see where the reading takes me. Um, But I am just so happy that everybody came back um, to season two. I had a longer break than I had planned to, but sometimes rest is really needed. Um, And, you know, doing this kind of work that is rooted in like essentially anti-racism, but also going through these histories of race and violence and aggression and like distress sometimes can be really like mentally taxing. And so a break was needed. But here I am back again to tell you about the origins of Notting Hill Carnival. Now, you might be thinking, ah, if this episode is, has all these trigger warnings already, um, you know, what what will it be all about? Um, and essentially, we be broken up into a few segments. The first one will be the anti-racist sentiment of West London in the 1950s, the Notting Hill riots, the death of Kelso Cochrane, and then the starts, the beginnings of the carnival um, with figures and individuals like Claudia Jones who were instrumental in the start of Notting Hill Carnival. Next week's episode will actually be more about the Caribbean traditions that drove carnival to be what it was because as you'll know when you get to the end of this episode carnival in this country did not start out as a street party it started out in a hall Um, a big hall but a hall all the same and so we'll be getting into kind of the Caribbean traditions, you know, the influences from Trinidad, the music, the individuals that were so instrumental in pushing Carnival to what it is today. Um, so this kind of sets the context, the racial context, um, the historic context of West London, especially in the 1950s. But next week, we'll be looking more at the kind of, the I guess, the party side of Carnival. We'll really be getting into the mood as there is obviously no Carnival this year. You can come and discuss it and listen to the history of it over here. So without further ado, let us get on to this episode. Right. So as we know from previous episodes, and if you haven't listened to previous episodes, I would suggest you go back. But you're here now. You can stick around. Not a problem. British people in the 1950s, they felt like they had a big problem on their hands. 
a huge issue. They didn't know what to do about it. Well, they did. They had many solutions. But they weren't really very viable. And their issue were immigrants. They were fed up. Not all of them. Not maybe not most of them. But a very loud, <laughs> a loud group um, that in some ways had quite a lot of power. And essentially, as we know, Caribbean people um, started coming over in the post-war era, so the late 1940s, early 1950s, sizable communities of West Indian people were being established, especially in the poorer areas of London, other big cities, um, and some of the rural parts. Maybe not so much big communities, but, you know, individual people. And so, as a result of this, you get anti-immigrant sentiment, you begin to get racism, you begin to see clashes um, with groups of people that don't understand and don't care to understand, might I add, why these black people are in their country, why they're here to steal their jobs, why they're here to change their communities and their cultures and take their houses and their women and all the other things that they say, which we all know is absolutely fallacious because these people were invited over to do the jobs that British people couldn't or wouldn't do. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that it doesn't really matter why somebody's migrating to your country you should be respectful regardless because they're actually just human beings at the end of the day. Um, and yep, I'm speaking for now as much as I'm speaking for then. So one of these groups that were especially pressed by these recent uh, immigrants into the country were the Teddy Boys. Now, whenever you Google the Teddy Boys, much to my disappointment, whenever I Google them, and I, I blame Wikipedia, um, and I always just click Wikipedia just to get an overview sometimes, and then I go on to, like, you know, a better source afterwards. Uh, the Teddy Boys on Wikipedia are just a British subculture interested in rock and roll and R&B music. Yeah, right. That's all they did. <laughs> right, so the Teddy Boys... Uh, if anyone here knows anything about, you know, race relations, will know that they were one of the most antagonistic groups of far right kind of sentiment, feeling, ideology, anti-black, racist groups of people to walk Britain's streets. They were fascist, essentially. Um, and I think post-war Britain really gave rise to like lots of new trends, including this culture, because Britain, you have to remember, they've just won a war. And if you think about the energy when Britain won, like, the semi-finals of the Euros, this, like, really strong, nationalistic, patriotic culture, which, you know, they've won a war, like, I get it, but I don't get it, maybe because I don't really identify with a lot of the imagery and the, you know, history, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, they're very patriotic, and they've also kind of a little bit lost, I would say. If you were a soldier, you now come back. A lot of the jobs that were created are no longer there. Some cases, there were a lot of unemployment. Even though you'd think the country needed rebuilding, there were actually lots of jobs to do, but some people would have felt lost. And I think when you're in that kind of mental state, you tend to go into different areas that, you know, would give you community. And not to justify people joining any of these far-right groups, but... They did. Um, so the teddy boys, on a surface level, and I, I will say not every single teddy boy would have been racist and chasing black people and murdering them, but they were dressed in three-piece suits, drainpipe trousers, they had flamboyant pompadour hairstyles and also a hairstyle known as a jelly roll. It's been called a lot of things, also duck's ass, which I didn't really see why, but 
yeah, that's that's the name. Um, and it was like a revival of Edwardian style fashion, um, influenced by like rock and roll, which was really popular in the 1950s on like a global scale, not just in America um, or Britain. They were kind of at the forefront, I would say, of racism, violent clashes in West London, especially, but all over London um, and I'm sure in other big cities, too. They held a far right ideology, which kind of spouted things like keep Britain white. They wanted to see the newly arrived West Indian communities going straight back home or eradicated in some other way. And yes, that is as insidious as it sounds. So when black people started moving to the kind of working class area, which was then called Notting Dales, which um, is kind of like a residential enclave of the district of Notting Hill. And forgive me, I do not know West London very well at all. I can probably count on, well, I can count on like 25 hands the amount of times I've been there and they're pretty much all for carnival. <laughs> so yeah, my geography's not great, but from what I understand, it's like a part of Notting Hill that they would have been in. Um, and there was an article I read by a former Teddy boy, who's a current historian actually called Eddie Adams. He's now 84. Um, and he said that, I remember when black people first moved to the area, there was a mixed reaction. The group that I belonged to were quite progressive, but there were others who were very anti-black. White youths were going round attacking black people. They were going around the area and picking on houses where black people lived. And after a while, the black people began to fight back. And that is what this episode is all about, really. Black people facing this really violent racism and, you know, walking down the street and being attacked for no reason. That is a different level of fear, I think. Um, but it's what black people were subjected to, especially in the 50s. And it's very interesting that this man, Eddie Adams, kind of separates himself from the kind of stereotype of a teddy boy and kind of suggests his group was more progressive because they weren't anti-black. Um, very, yeah, an interesting, I guess, group of people in that sense. We're not going to look too much about them, but we are going to look at what they did. Um, so the summer of 1958 is where everything came to a head, I would say. It's what's known as the Notting Hill Riots. And I don't like the word riot very much because it suggests that, I don't know, like people went crazy and started trashing the place, the streets. And I just feel like there could be a better and more nuanced term for what actually happened. So summer of 1958, the Teddy Boys just, I don't know, up the ante, they really did begin to attack black people at a very alarming rate. It reached boiling point in August of 1958. Because racist sentiment at the time was just so kind of standard procedure and general anti-immigrant feeling was very clear across various echelons of society. It wasn't just working class belief. It was literally everywhere. It was in the politicians, it was in working class people, middle class people, upper class people. Everybody had their views about, you know, whether these West Indian people should be here or not. Um, and so a lot of people that would have been, say, neighbours or, you know, would have passed people on the street being beaten up or abused, they did very little because, well, they felt the same. For the most part, they might have agreed and they might have thought, yeah, actually, go home, go back to where you came from. But other cases, they might have actually been scared. As we know, the London Metropolitan Police, I feel like I say this every episode, but mm, were they really keen to protect black people? No. Were they keen to uh, antagonise black people? Yes. So whose side do you think they, they took? Um, in most cases, black people would not call the police. Why would you? Uh, bystanders would not call the police because they didn't really care enough. Um, and whose side would they take anyway if they did care? So essentially, you know, the police were kind of, I guess, 
sanctioning this violence. And, you know, they were conducting their own sanctioned violence. It's state-sanctioned violence, I think, when the police are actually not protecting citizens and going out their way to abuse and bully them. And um, sorry for my language in advance, but the, the thing that they would do at night is go nigger hunting. And it was the same language as teddy boys used. So the police were going out to antagonise black people, to beat them up, to hunt them. And so were the teddy boys. So they were essentially on the same side. So really... There was no one to help black people at that time. They had to help themselves. Um, in, you know, the West London area, it seemed to be like an extra big problem. I'll give some context. In 1954, in Camden Town, um, black people had defended themselves uh, against white attackers who threw a petrol bomb into the house of a West Indian family. And attacks like this were commonplace across London um, as a whole, um, you know, Camden being another place that things like this were happening. July 1958, five white youths attacked and wrecked a black-owned cafe in Shepherd's Bush. The owner said it was, and I quote, just like an earthquake. Um, and the youth that were caught were actually conditionally discharged and had to pay a £40 fine in compensation, which is obviously a lot more than £40 in today's money. Another thing to think about is actually the housing situation. And Notting Hill was a very working-class area, which might be hard to believe now because house prices are probably, what, in the millions? Um, and it was mostly white families that lived there, but obviously as migration numbers grew, um, more black people were, were living there, and landlords like the notorious Peter Rackman, who I need to do an episode on one day, who was a slum landlord and just absolutely exploited anyone and everyone. He actually began to rent to black tenants, which you might think, oh, amazing, you know, someone's giving them a home because you have, I'm sure, seen the uh, no blacks, no Irish, no dog signs um, and keep, keep Britain white on walls of houses that black people might have been living in. You know, housing was a, a very, very big problem for black people trying to find somewhere to live. Um, but Peter Rackman is not a good guy. He was about equal exploitation, Everybody could get it. He was notorious because he owned, I think, 147 properties in the area and would actually send in burly men and dogs to intimidate tenants when they ever tried to like appeal at a rent tribunal or not pay rent on time. He was essentially just a bully with um, hundreds of properties. So he obviously had power. The police would not protect these tenants, of course. They don't protect black people. Um, and also, I'm sure there were probably some of them being paid off by Peter Rackman. Um, corruption is and probably will always be rife um, so that yeah added another worry to the head tops of black people let's be honest now there was another layer um, because there's a housing crisis in London right now and there, there kind of was then as well um, and so the layer is the fact that these racists and fascists then blamed black people for creating this housing shortage because they're stealing our jobs they're stealing our homes um, and so, you know, this treatment that Rackman was giving out, they would say is the fault of black people because this housing is so scarce. And that meant that essentially black people were not only struggling to find housing, they were also being blamed if they managed to find housing. And it was just a terrible time, to be honest. Um, it wasn't the best time. So August 17th, there was another incidence of racial violence towards black people. And by the way, all the incidents I'm kind of pulling up are mostly taken from Peter Fryer's staying power, where he goes into detail um, and kind of lists all of them, uh, and kind of explains them and then explains kind of what that all meant for for race relations in Britain at the time, which I think is quite an important um part of his his story um in his text i reference it literally every episode 
or I've probably read from it to kind of inspire episodes. So definitely Peter Fryer's staying power. Now, some of the things he details were the fact that a Jamaican man was shot in the leg in West London. Petrol bombs are thrown into the homes of black people, one of whom was actually a pregnant woman. Um, these attacks often came with like a warning, like, oh, we're going to rage you tonight if you don't clear out or, you know, if you're not gone, something will be coming for you. Um, an African student emerging from the London underground, um, one of the stops, was actually chased by a crowd who shouted lynch him. Um, he hid in the greengrocers who thankfully like locked him in um, and hid him um, while those people were pursuing him. Nine youths were arrested and sentenced to four years in prison um, by a judge um, who said, actually, and interestingly, it was everyone's right to walk through our streets with their heads erect and free from fear and that those responsible had actually filled the whole nation with horror, indignation and disgust, which I think is a little bit mad. And Peter Fryer also thinks it's a little bit mad because he says um, that, you know, it talks about, yeah, the people that were inciting the... Um, sorry, the people that were kind of carrying out these acts of violence were the perpetrators and they were at fault. But what about the people that incited this hatred? Like, what about the Oswald Mosleys and the other politicians who kind of created this very safe space for fascism, racism, and this anti-immigrant feeling? Like, this was okayed by society. The fact that they were doing this was fine because so many people in positions of influence were saying the same thing. Um, you know, the perpetrators of these like violent acts, obviously we can see them getting sentenced to prison, which is fantastic. But, you know, there's no anti-racism laws until 1965 when the Race Relations Act comes in and that doesn't really protect black people. So if you're living in a society that has no kind of desire to protect you and has nothing in place to protect you, no systems, no laws, like why then are we surprised that these violent acts are taking place? Additionally, in the media, these, these violent acts were actually sensationalised um, and widely reported, which meant that people actually come into the borough to see what was happening and to see kind of how bad it was and, like, you know, how these black people were being treated, which I just think is a bit... It's a bit like trauma porn in a way. Like, you know, we're going to, like, go and see how badly black people are kind of coping. I don't think that's great. That's not great. Um, not at all. And so, you know, West Indian people were just fed up in so many different ways and started actually thinking about going home. Um, that was kind of the sentiment at the time, but obviously not all of them thought that way. And kind of a group of what, you know, Peter Fry describes as militants, organised to defend their homes, their clubs. Um, and, you know, in the Grove, uh, Labrook Grove, I think is what it is now, of course, um, which was actually known as a black ghetto of West London, they decided that attack was the best form of self-defence, kind of giving me, like, American Panthers, Black Panther kind of vibes. Um, but, yeah, they went to the local fascist HQ and a club where white men were kind of known to be planning a racist attack, and they actually threw petrol bombs at the front um, and waited while, um, you know, they came out the back. So half of them kind of, I guess, threw the petrol bombs, the others waited at the back. Um, and then saw them running out. And now Peter Fry kind of says that, you know, these fascists did not roam the street for at least one night, which doesn't suggest they were put out of action. I don't believe anybody died um, or was like crazily, fatally injured. But, you know, it, it stopped them for one night from perpetrating this kind of violence on black people, which was kind of all the, the respite they needed, I guess, to kind of rise up and, and go again. So I've kind of detailed lots of like individual 
events that were happening at the time, but obviously you can imagine the feeling and sentiment in West London. But notably on the 29th of August 1958, and it's often kind of seen as like this catalyst point for the riots, um, violence kind of completely breaks out when there's an argument outside Latimer Road Station between a West Indian man um, and his white wife. And I believe um, this woman was a Polish woman um, and the man was um, Jamaican. Um, and, you know, the kind of crowd that grew from this argument, I assume it was just kind of standard domestics, were members of the Teddy Boys, which obviously led to a fight between them who they kind of decided to defend this white woman who didn't really want or need their defence, um, I don't believe. Um, and then the friends of the West Indian man got involved as well. So now it's a big kind of brawl. Um, but also... Interestingly, some reports suggest that the teddy boys were actually shouting at the white woman, calling her like a black man's trollop. Um, and sorry to say again, um, but like, yeah, nigger lover and that kind of thing. Words of that nature. So again, that kind of highly racialized language, highly offensive, obviously going to start a fight. Now, the following night, again, um, yeah, violence erupts in Notting Hill. Um, because these like same young white men who are you know part of these fascist movements, they actually took to the streets and throw, were throwing homemade firebombs at houses of black residents. Uh, one resident described actually the experience of the BBC, and he said um, they're marking the outsides of houses for the Teddy Boys so they know where to bomb and where not to bomb. And I just find it so crazy to me that when we learn, you know race relations in this country we don't think about the actual physical acts of violence that fascist racist groups and like individual people were happy to kind of watch and let happen in their own streets in their own communities like I understand it's not easy to necessarily stand up to the teddy boys but I don't know like what how can you live with yourself just watching things like that happen? And I'm sure not everybody just stood by. I'm sure there were acts of kindness throughout and like actual humanity. But it's just astounding to me. Um, you know, these riots continued and nights of violence followed and lots of really highly like racialized and violent language. And I really don't want to just kind of throw out all these terms. But also, I think it's really important for us to actually on this podcast have this kind of painful conversation and just see how like virulent and insidious racism is and sometimes you have to hear how disgusted and how shocking some of the things that were said are to really get it um so you know go home you black bastards things of that nature let's get these niggers give them to us and we'll string them up we're going to scare the hell out of these niggers those are the things they were running down the street shouting now i don't know but if i was I am a black person, but if I was in my home in 1958, you know, looking after children or, or family members, I'd be petrified, to be to be quite frank. And I completely understand why, you know, West Indian people at the time were like kind of fight or flight. Like we become a militant and try and fight back or think about going back to our, our homes um, because it's just all too much. At this juncture, you might be thinking, OK, well, what were the police doing throughout all of this, you know? Well, as we've said, they didn't care to protect black people. We know this. Um, has the situation changed much? Mm, maybe that's a debate for another episode. But, you know, the police has decided that their superiors' orders of clear the streets of crowds was going to be their mission and exactly what they did. So they diligently broke up any group of black people, big or small even though I'm sure there were crowds of white people. Literally crowds of two or three black people were being broken up by the police and told, you know, go home, go home, go home. 
So as you can imagine, you know, by way of police priorities and how they police that situation, it really comes across as if black people are to blame because they're the ones being moved on by the police. They're the ones being told to go home. Now, this violence um, towards black people, it didn't just kind of happen in West London. Let's not kind of think that. Um, Southall, Hornsey, Islington, Hackney, Stepney, which we know are in East. It stayed strong in uh, Kensal Green, North Paddington, Halsden. Like, it was spread across London. And, you know, that's just London. I am sure in the North, in Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, uh, the Midlands, you know, Nottingham had riots the year previous. This was not just an isolated incident for West London. However, I think because of the situation with housing, the kind of working class demographic of people there, it's, it seems to be that it was a lot hotter of a fire, shall we say, and the catalyst and the match that was lit um, with the events that happened seemed to, to kind of create a bigger explosion. Now, things kind of went back to normal after 1958, um, which obviously wasn't great. Like, normal wasn't good for black people. Normal isn't good for black people in this country, I'm sorry to say. Um, and this happened until May 1959, um, where we have the death of Kelso Cochrane. Now, Kelso Cochrane was murdered on Southampton Street, May 1959, in what the police described as a scuffle. Yes, you heard that correctly. What we now know to be a racially motivated murder of a young man described as a scuffle. So, Notting Hill, London, May 17th, 1959, a Sunday, just after midnight. Having had his finger, which he'd broken at work, replastered at the local hospital, Kelso Cochrane was walking home. He was quite near the house which he shared um, a room in with his partner Olivia, when a gang of white youths surround him, they called him insulting names, they punched, they pushed, they thumped and stabbed him uh, with a stiletto knife. And when he collapsed, they ran away. Kelso Cochrane was born in 1926 in rural Antigua. Um, and, you know, like many West Indians, as we know, after the Second World War, he actually migrated to the United States, began as a farm labourer, joined the US Army briefly and ended up in New York. He actually married a black American um, and then... The marriage having collapsed, he actually was deported to Antigua. Um, and then after a little while, he decided to travel to England. Now, like most West Indians, um, he arrived um, at Plymouth. It took him to Paddington Station. Um, and like the other kind of hundreds and thousands at the time of West Indians, he settled close by in Notting Hill. So he would have been a resident of, of West London at the time. Now, you know, after the incident, when he was stabbed and collapsed, two black men rushed over, um, a taxi stopped. Cochrane was actually picked up and put in a taxi. And by the time they reached the hospital, he had unfortunately stopped breathing. And someone called um, a reporter at Sunday Express. Um, and what they had said was, three white youths have stabbed a darkie named Cochrane. And even that alone, in your last moments, your final hours, to, to be merely portrayed by the colour of your skin as a darkie just really says everything that needs to be said about the situation at the time. This was fortunately, I guess that's a weird word to use, but the first kind of post-war murder of a black person in Britain. Unfortunately, obviously not the last, um, you know, racially motivated crime. Um, but yeah, despite evidence uh, to the contrary, 
Castle Cochrane was not a wealthy man, um, which the police claimed it was an attempted robbery, not a racial murder. Um, and as I said before, they, they first kind of said it was a scuffle. Now, this idea that, you know, they were trying to rob Kelso Cochrane, he's like just arrived from Antigua, is sharing a bedroom in a house with his partner um, and works as a kind of carpenter who wouldn't have been earning, you know, the, the biggest wage just is a bit fallacious and ridiculous, really. Um, and it's just clear, again, that this idea that Britain is a racist country, it just can't be accepted. Um, and it's just, it feels like at every opportunity something being racially motivated just cannot be the answer for, for British people in the state. The police cannot accept that this murder is racially motivated, even though, you know, bystanders have said it was three teddy boys that have stabbed him and beat him up. Make it make sense. Now, um, Cochrane's brother actually put out a, a poster to say, can you help? Because to this day, no one's actually been charged for this murder. Um and he, yeah, he put out a flyer. It's on the Instagram page. If you, if you follow us on Instagram, it was one of the images posted in the promo for this episode. But he wanted answers, you know, he wanted justice for his brother. And justice, unfortunately, has not been served. Although there is a person that's a very likely suspect based on a book that was written um, by a man called Mark Alden. Called, he wrote a book called Murder in Notting Hill. And it explores the social history of the area and also investigates the murder of, of Kelso Cochrane. Um... I'm not even going to give him his name, airtime, of the person that allegedly did it um, because I think it's better to, to kind of honour Kelso Cochrane and his life. On the 6th of June 1959, so a few weeks after the murder, hundreds of people, black and white, packed the streets outside of St Michael and All Angels Church in a unifying stand against racial disparities. And Mark Oden, who I said wrote that book, he says, I think it was a defining moment. Kelso's funeral was attended by over a thousand people lying in Labrook Grove. People were disgusted by the incident. It was a moment where black people were saying, we're here to stay. Unfortunately, um, Kelso Cochrane's murder kind of had to happen, it seems, for people to actually understand just how terrible racism was and what it was actually going to lead to. And it seems that, you know, a thousand people went to the funeral of this man who probably only knew, you know, a handful of people in the country. Um, and I think money was sent actually back home. A fundraiser was done and money was sent back home to his mum because he was supporting his mum from from Britain and sending money back home to Antigua. And it kind of seems as if, like, it was a kind of reality check. Like, people realise that, you know, if if this carries on, this is what our streets will look like all the time. Um, it was a shock to people in the area, apparently. That I don't understand. This is from people that were living in the area at the time that said it was a shock. And even people that were anti-black began to act normal after that killing, um, it was said. Which, to me, is very scary. That it literally takes the blood of a young man spilled on the streets for people to actually remember that we're all human extremely very scary to me um the teddy boys i think at this point are seen as like thugs that just hang on street corners looking for trouble and are not not that they were ever accepted by like mainstream society they were a bit of a subculture but i think at that point it's like not even cool to be a teddy boy anymore it's just distance yourself from it um but i think people that did remain a teddy boys tended to focus more like on the fashion and on the music, which is why I think their reputation is not so tarnished, because 
I guess they did like a a revamp, like the character arc must have been in their favour. Anyway, Mr Cochrane, Kelso Cochrane's funeral arrangements were actually led by Claudia Jones, who is a Trinidadian journalist and activist um, and editor of the first black British newspaper, the West Indian Gazette. And I think we're going to pause the story here because I really do want to devote and dedicate a lot of time to Claudia's work for the next episode and then talk about how Carnival ended up from, you know, uh, a small kind of fair in St Pancras Town Hall filmed by the BBC um, to the fantastic, colourful, loud procession of people, music, party party goers and everything that Carnival is today. Um, now, one thing I will say is Carnival often brings a lot of negative media attention and a lot of people have a lot of things to say about, you know, what happens, about crime, about all these kind of, you know, redundant things to me that really frustrate me when I think about the history of Notting Hill and West London and I think about what black people had to overcome and I think about the fact that having one carnival, one festival, you know, where you in are in the majority, you're in this country surrounded by Caribbean people, surrounded by black people that are having a good time, are happy, are dancing, are celebrating. I feel that now and I can't imagine how important that would have been in the 1950s and early 1960s when it took, you know, it took itself into into full swing. So, yeah, we'll be addressing some of those things next episode and it will obviously arrive in your um, headphones by the bank holiday Monday. Um, so, you know, you can listen to that while you recover from whatever you've done over the weekend. But I am looking forward to exploring the kind of further origins of Notting Hill Carnival next episode and I hope you have a wonderful week in the meantime and thank you so much for listening if you made it all the way to the end I'm so so grateful have a great day goodbye thank you for listening to the history hotline the hottest line for all things black history and beyond if you've learned anything new today please share with a friend The podcast is available on all good podcast platforms. Please follow us, review and rate our podcast to help us grow and continue to produce episodes for you. Give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram or LinkedIn to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and events. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.